Would you turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 18? Matthew chapter 18. Last week we noted that we're just going to spend some time with a few parables that I haven't covered uh, since I have been here. And they are parables last week on righteousness and God's grace that gives us righteousness, not something that we have to come up with on our own. And then as a result of that grace, a couple of parables that we'll look at on forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, you may have noted already that we had a rather lengthy time with our prayer of confession and with all of the different readings and, and songs because I wanted to focus our attention on how God forgives us, His faithfulness in forgiving us and His, His grace in allowing us to remain in relationship with Him even though we are sinners. Because as we look at these parables of Jesus, we're not going to look at that part of forgiveness, God's forgiveness. Jesus does deal with those in, in some of his parables. Certainly, the most uh, notable one, perhaps, is the prodigal son. Maybe his greatest parable because it is an expression of, of who God is. But based on that forgiveness, Jesus also teaches about our need to forgive, And so for the next two weeks, we're going to look at forgiveness, first asking the question, why forgive? And then next week, we'll look at that tough issue of forgiving our enemies. But this morning, why forgive? Now, the background of this, if you look, uh, if you back up just a few verses, you'll see that Jesus has been dealing with, how how do you approach sin in the church? How do you deal with forgiveness in the church? And this is the, the passage that actually our, our churches use as the background for church discipline. So Jesus says, if someone sins against you, you go to them, first of all, one-on-one. And if they will not fess up to their sin or will not uh, help you deal with it and, and reconcile, then you might want to call a couple of other people in so that you have some other witnesses and some other, uh, other uh, thoughts in the whole process. If they will not respond to that, then you may have to take it to the church, uh, particularly to the elders, and, uh, and have them talk with them about it. And as you see, each, each step is, is an increasing um, seriousness that is lent to that old idea. And if it comes to the point where they will not listen to the church, then comes that point where you may have to treat them, I think Jesus is like a pagan and tax collector. That is, uh, you break fellowship with them. We sometimes call that excommunication. And while we think that that is the ultimate in discipline, that's the last step, it's really not. Because the whole goal of every step of discipline is to bring those, those people back in reconciliation. Even excommunication, the goal is to have them see the seriousness of their sin and bring them back into relationships. So the goal all the time is forgiveness and reconciliation. Well, Jesus is explaining this to his disciples, and you can just see Peter's wheels turning in his head as he starts thinking about forgiveness, and particularly, why forgive? So let's look at what uh, Peter asked Jesus and how Jesus responds with the parable. Verses 21 through 35 of Matthew 18. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? 
Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, the man who owed him, man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold or talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay me back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then this is Jesus' explanation. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Wow. Those are some strong words. Let's ask that the Holy Spirit will help us understand them. Holy Spirit, we pray that even as you inspired these words to be recalled by Matthew and, and the other gospel writers and spoken by Jesus in this particular setting, that you would help us to understand what they mean for us and how we might live according to these words in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Simon Wiesenthal tells the story in his book, The Sunflower, of how he walked away and left a young German SS trooper to die unforgiven when he was in a concentration camp in Austria. The soldier lay dying from head wounds and begged Wiesenthal to forgive him, but Wiesenthal walked away. Wiesenthal was a young architect at the time, sure that he was doomed along with other Jews caught in Hitler's death machine. On a certain afternoon, he was given the job of cleaning out rubbish from an improvised hospital outside the camp where wounded German soldiers were trucked in from the Russian front. Getting toward evening, a nurse took him by the arm and brought him to the bedside of, the boy, of a boyish stormtrooper named Karl whose head was bandaged with pus-soaked bandages. He would soon die. Carl grabbed Wiesenthal's wrist. He whispered that he had to talk to a Jew, any Jew, before he died so that he could confess some terrible things he'd done when he was stationed in a Russian village. There, his company was ordered to take reprisals on that village, so they packed a frame house with Jews, including many children, poured gasoline on the floors, locked the doors, and set the house on fire. People near the windows jumped. The soldiers shot them before they landed on the ground, shot children along with their parents, 
machine gunned them down in the air while they fell. Carl finished, appeared to be weeping, and then when he got control of himself, he begged Wiesenthal to forgive him. He could not die in peace unless a Jew forgave him for the terrible thing he did in that village. Wiesenthal listened, awestruck, to everything Carl told him. He said nothing. Finally, he yanked his hand away and left Carl to die with his unforgivable sins unforgiven. Afterward, Wiesenthal worried that maybe he had been wrong not to forgive a young man who begged for forgiveness on his deathbed. When the war was over and he had survived the Holocaust, Wiesenthal wrote his story. At the end of it, he asked his readers, Was my silence at the bedside of a dying Nazi right or wrong? This is a profound moral question that challenges the conscience. And then he asked, What would you have done? What would we have done? It leads to the question, why forgive? Does it ever seem unfair, unjust, like there has to be a limit, that, that there has to be certain things that are simply unforgivable? Most books on forgiveness focus on how to forgive. Some get into why forgive, but usually it is all about our perspective. We need to forgive because it releases us from our pain. It, it keeps us from wanting to take vengeance. It's, it's something that's helpful for us, but it doesn't talk about forgiveness uh, in the bigger picture of things. But Jesus does. There's nothing as straightforward about why forgive than Jesus' parable here. Why forgive? Peter, never one to mince words, asks our question for us, but he phrases it differently. He asks, how much should we forgive? Jesus has just given his great instruction on how to deal with someone who wrongs us. And while the hope is to bring forgiveness and reconciliation, the outcome could be dissolving the relationship. In that context, Peter asks a very practical question. How far should I go? Seven times? He thought, probably thought he was being pretty magnanimous. I mean, after all, that's better than three strikes and you're out. You see, Peter knew by law and tradition that it was his duty to forgive. It was his duty. But what's the limit? Isn't there a time to say enough is enough? Peter is clearly looking at it from a duty and law perspective. But Jesus responds, try 77 times. Actually, if you look at the, the word in the Greek, it's a very awkward word. It's actually a formula, mathematical formula. 10 times 7 plus 7 is kind of the rough translation if you want to do it literally. But think about that. The numbers 10 and 7 were numbers for the Jews that denoted completion, perfection. So it's as if Jesus is saying, forgive completely, times completely, 
plus completely. Some scholars say the words actually mean 70 times 7, 490, but it really doesn't matter because Jesus is already conveying the idea of infinity, that there is no end to true forgiveness. Because while Peter looks at forgiveness from the law and duty perspective, Jesus looks at forgiveness from the perspective of grace. Of grace. Do you ever have a similar idea to Peter? Have you ever had someone hurt you to the point where you said, that's enough, no more? Do you feel like there needs to be a limit or justice is somehow violated? That's worldly thinking says Jesus. Christianity, the kingdom of God, is about acting by grace and not by law. And so Jesus tells a story. And like most of his stories, his parables, it begins, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like. If we wanted to translate that for us today, it would be something like, Christianity is about. Christianity is about a king's servant. Act 1. The king's servant is probably a financial minister of a district, and he's called with the other managers or other uh, district ministers on April 15 to the IRS office to settle accounts with the king. This would be a percentage of taxes that he collected in his district. He would keep so much for the working of his district, and the rest went to the king. Now, for his district, we're told that the number was 10,000 talents. Now, that goes right over our heads if we don't understand what a talent is. You need to understand this is an exaggerated amount. King Herod, over all of Israel, King Herod's entire yearly revenue was 900 talents. We're talking 10,000 talents. We're not just talking Bill Gates money. We're talking national debt money. Stuff that can't be repayable. It's ridiculously high amounts. Like Jesus saying, suppose a man owed a zillion dollars. So this man knows he and his family will be sold into debtor's slavery in order to repay it, which of course is never going to be accomplished while he's a slave and can't earn the money. So he falls at the feet of the king and begs for leniency. He, he, he asked to be allowed to pay back what he could. There were no bankruptcy laws for him to help, to help him out. He basically says, I'll pay it all back. Even if it's only $5 a week, I'll do it. I promise. And instead, he receives what he least expects. The complete cancellation of his debt. Imagine his his joy and gratitude. But it doesn't seem to last very long because as we come to Act 2, now this servant becomes one who is owed by another of the king's servants and it's just a few bucks, possibly up to a day's wage, but easily repayable within a couple of days. Let me pick up my paycheck on Friday and I'll have it for you. But the servant has no intention of waiting until Friday or even a second longer. He has the man thrown into debtor's prison, probably expecting someone to bail him out by repaying the debt and therefore he'll get his money a couple of days earlier. 
Which leads to Act 3. When the king hears this story, he not only reinstates the debt, but has the servant thrown into prison with orders to continue torturing the guy until he coughs up the cash, which, of course, he's never going to be able to do. And then, in verse 35, Jesus gives the explanation in one line. God will do this to you if you are not forgiving. Wow. God will do this to you if you are not forgiving. Did, did Matthew hear that wrong? It doesn't sound like Jesus. Well, the thing you do when you find Scripture that disturbs you and doesn't, that seems out of character with other Scripture, is the good reform principle of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. And what we find out is this is not the only time the Bible says something like this. James 2, 13. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Or just look at Jesus' Lord's Prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. And he tells them to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As we forgive our debtors. And then, just to make sure they got the point, he goes on and explains it. The only, the only line in the Lord's Prayer he explains. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will for also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Lewis Smedes, in his book Forgive and Forget, asks, why is Jesus so hard on us? And he answers, he's tough because the incongruity of sinners refusing to forgive sinners boggles God's mind. He cannot cope with it. There's no honest way to put up with it. So he says, if you want forgiving from God and you cannot forgive someone who needs a little forgiving from you, forget about the forgiveness you want. Take away the eloquence of the King James English, writes Smeads, and, he, and you get Jesus saying something like this, if you refuse to forgive other people when you, expect to be, when you expect to be forgiven, you can go to hell. Literally. Literally. So what do we do with this? What can we learn from this parable that suddenly is not a simple, nice little story, but packs a real punch? Well, as I mentioned last week, Jesus' parables have theology in them. And I want to note two theological truths that I want to pick out of this parable. The first is the depth of God's love and grace cannot be measured, but only approximated by ridiculously high numbers, 10,000 talents, a zillion dollars. The depth of God's love and grace cannot be measured. Secondly, the contrasting attitudes are justice versus mercy, law versus grace. And, and Peter had a little problem grasping this. Simon Wiesenthal had a little problem grasping this. We have a little problem grasping this. For we too often think and feel from a law and justice perspective. But Jesus reminds us that if God thought this way toward us, there'd be hell to pay. If, 
If God said, I'm going to serve justice, where would we be in our sins? And so Jesus, in this parable, reminds us of how much we've been forgiven, a ridiculously high amount. And then he says, that should cause you to live with a grace and gratitude perspective. A grace and gratitude perspective. So how should this parable change, mold our thinking as Christians? One, Christianity, the kingdom of God, is about acting out of gratitude and with a grace perspective, not out of duty and with a law perspective. Now that runs counter to our culture, right? Our culture has this high value, this great emphasis on rights. And my rights have to be protected at all costs. But Jesus says whenever we start thinking about fairness and justice and our rights, we need to remember where fairness and justice and our rights on God's part would land us. Because of our sin, what are our rights? Not what we want. And so it's about God's grace, which leads to a second thought. God's grace is immeasurable. Zillion bucks. God's grace is immeasurable. But our gratitude to God is measured by our grace toward others. God's grace is immeasurable, but our gratitude toward God is measured by our grace toward others. God pays attention to whether we act out of gratitude or as ungrateful people. And he expects as much as possible for us to act like him. So who do you need to forgive today? Who's your SS trooper? What relationships or situations might you be saying, well, enough's enough? Choose to forgive, Jesus says. Take that first step of grace this week. And if you don't know how, pray. Asking God to help your sense of justice and fairness to be outweighed by your gratitude for the immeasurable grace of God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your grace. And that out of that grace, we stand forgiven. We stand in a relationship with God that we had thrown out the window in our, because of our sin. That we had been driven out of the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve because of our sin. And yet you have brought us close again to God through that grace, through the forgiveness that you afford us by your own blood. So help us to be gracious people. Help us to be those who look at others with your eyes and remind ourselves of the great debt that we owe you, the tremendous gratitude that we should have because of your grace, and to pass that on to others. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by singing, Make Me a Channel of Your Peace. And this is actually in the Grace Altar hymnal.
number 545. We will also be uh, having it on the words on the screen as well. Make me a channel of your peace. Let's stand and sing the three stanzas. Thank you.